turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians, chapter 10. 1 Corinthians, chapter 10, verses 14 through 22. This is the word of the Lord. Give it your reverent and careful attention as I read it to you. <clears throat> Therefore, my beloved, flee from immor- excuse me, from idolatry. Flee from idolatry. I speak as to wise men. You judge what I say. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless, a sharing in the blood of Christ? Is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices, who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. But I say that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we not stronger than he? We are not stronger than he. Are we? The obvious answer to that is no. Join me in prayer. Oh Lord, we do rejoice in the opportunity to hear from you, our King and our Savior. For it is you who are the great prophet of the church, the one who has spoken um, from the beginning of time and continues to speak now through your written word and through your preached word. Lord, it is a mysterious thing that takes place um, when preaching is done, but it is you who is in the preaching, when um, a lawfully ordained man of God uh, properly expounds the scriptures. Would you please, Lord, help me to properly expound this scripture passage for the good of your people, but even more importantly, uh, that you might not be dishonored. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Children, when I was a little boy, a young boy, I, I remember exactly how old I was. I'm guessing I was uh, four, five, six, somewhere in that uh, age range. But when I was a young boy, um, my playmates and I used to play in the woods behind the school, which was across the street from our house. There was a wooded area there, and uh, there were lots of vines and tall trees and a lot of places to hide. And uh, it was just kind of a fun place for young children to play. And I played 
with a couple of playmates of mine uh, in those woods pretty regularly. And one day, we were back there playing, and we found an unusual piece of wood. That piece of wood looked like a piece of bone. It was a... Uh, it was uh, thin in the middle and it had two uh, knots on either end of it. It looked like a dog bone, pretty much, sort of. Um, and my friend and I, there were only two of us there at the time, we began to t- talk to that piece of bone as if it were a person. I know it's weird. Anyway, it is weird, but um, we talked to that piece of bone because we kind of believed that it had magical powers. That it was actually a human being's bone and that it had magical powers. And we actually gave it a name, Crossbones Jones. I'm just, I'm being honest here. And we essentially turned Crossbones Jones, which was just a piece of wood, rotting wood, into an idol into an idol. We were treating it as if it had divine powers of a sort. Um, Now, you know, we eventually forgot about Crossbones and he got rotted the rest of the way and never saw, and don't know what happened to it, not to him, to it. Um, but the fact is, we, we, uh, we, like I said, we kind of feared him. We, and that was the other thing I was going to tell you. We actually feared that little piece of wood. We set up a little altar on a, on a fallen piece of wood and made a spot for him, put leaves down, I think, and set, set that bone on that. And we feared it. We were afraid it. I know that sounds crazy, kids, but let me tell you something. The tendency to commit idolatry is in every one of you and me and every adult here. We all have a tendency within us, because we are sinners, to make and honor and serve gods other than the true God of the Bible. And that's what idolatry is. It's to serve gods other than the true God. They may be figments of our imaginations. They may be pieces of wood. They may be pieces of stone. They may be the gods that uh, some of the uh, false religions of the world Uh, profess to believe in. But they're all false. And all of us have this natural tendency to not want to worship and serve the true God, but to worship and serve a false one. And this passage is about that tendency and speaks to that tendency within the heart of professing Christians. Paul is speaking here to professing Christians. I'll make that point here again in a moment. But... uh, People who claim to love Jesus. And he says to them there in that first verse, flee idolatry. Speaking to the church, flee idolatry. And that is uh, indeed what this passage that we're going to look at further is about. Why was this letter, 1 Corinthians, written by Paul? Well, it was written for, among other reasons, uh, in response to a letter that the Corinthians themselves had previously written to Paul, seeking counsel from him on certain issues that were confronting their church, their church community. There were a bunch of different issues, and we, many of us know uh, uh, about those issues, having read uh, 1 Corinthians. But one of the issues that was uh, was causing uh, consternation and turmoil amongst the Corinthian believers there in Corinth was... Uh, 
um, they wanted to seek advice from the Apostle Paul concerning the lawfulness of eating uh, sacrifices, meat sacrifices that pagans had offered up to their deities in in Corinth, in and around Corinth. You see, the situation in Corinth was pretty uh, was a pretty rough situation for a Christian to live in the midst of it. Um, they lived in the city. Uh, the city of Corinth was saturated with idolatry of all different varieties. Um, indeed, idolatry pervaded virtually every area of life uh, for the the uh, average person in Corinth. It, po- it pervaded political life, their their politics. It pervaded their social life. It pervaded uh, uh, their uh, holidays. It determined when their holidays were and uh, the the forms of uh, of celebration that took place during those holidays. Their forms of entertainment were uh, infused with their idolatrous notions, uh, more or less. Um, and as a result of this pervasive idolatry all around these Christians, these Christians, many of them were younger in the faith, uh, some of them were just professing Christians and weren't actual Christians, but anyway, the Christian community there was constantly in danger of becoming involved with some aspect of paganism. Uh, pagan worship without even knowing it, perhaps, or in some cases, perhaps, knowing it. And so, one of the most difficult questions related to this concern about um, being influenced by and uh, partaking of, in some ways, something pagan or idolatrous, one of the most difficult questions was the use of these of meat that was sacrificed to the idols, uh, of these pagan gods that was then later, a portion of that meat was sold in the marketplace or was eaten by the worshiper. And so Christians were confronted with this issue of eating meat sacrificed to idols whenever they went to the market to buy food. There it was, sitting out on display for people like them to buy. They were also confronted with this issue if they were invited over to the house of a non-Christian friend of theirs who was a pagan worshiper, a, a, a pagan, who almost certainly would have meat that had been sacrificed to idols uh, served uh, in their household. And it was also, uh, pagan, or Christians were also confronted if they got an invitation to participate in some way, uh, either directly or tangentially, uh, with uh, festivals that were taking place, uh, pagan festivals. So, and the reason they were confronted with this problem uh, was because of, again, the fact that this meat had previously been uh, sacrificed uh, in the pagan temples. One-third of the pagan sacrifices were consumed by actually putting it on the uh, an idol and burning it. Uh, an altar, rather, and burning it. A third would be given to the priest, the pagan priest, for his use, and a third would be kept by the offerer, uh, by the worshiper, and eaten by him and his family. And what what was you know what didn't get eaten by the priest or by people was often ended up in the marketplace, and so they Christians uh, had this problem of uh, being confronted with it whenever they went out to shop. Um. And so Christians in Corinth had various opinions as to what, what needed to be done in a situation like this. How do you handle this challenge? Um, and that is the reason they put the question to the Apostle Paul in their uh, previous correspondence to him, and he responds here in 1 Corinthians. 
um, and they wanted him to authoritatively settle the matter once and for all. There are three things that we're going to look at from this passage. First, uh, the first thing that we're going to see is we're going to see a command. Then we're going to see the basis for the command. And then thirdly, we're going to look at the implications of the command. And the command is the command to flee idolatry. I just read it to you a moment ago. But the Lord, first of all, commands you and me to flee idolatry. We're going to talk about that from this passage. Secondly, we're going to see the basis for the Lord's command that you flee idolatry and that I do so as well. And finally, we are going to look at the implications of the command to flee idolatry. First, the command itself. It's uh, there in verse 14, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This is an urgent command. It is imperatival language. It is strong language that Paul is using here. It is forceful language, and it is urgent language. He is saying, in, 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 it's in a short, succinct sentence, get away from idolatry. He's telling everybody to whom he's writing that. That, he, that, that his readers were to flee idolatry as if a, a pack of ravenous wolves were chasing after him, and you're to run. That's the, that's the idea. Just like, much like Joseph did when he fled from Potiphar's wife when she attempted to seduce him. Uh, the point here is, Paul's point, the Holy Spirit's point to you and to me, is idolatry should scare the daylights out of us. Our own, idolos, ten, our, our own idolatrous tendencies should scare the daylights out of us. So it should strike terror into our hearts, the thought of pursuing idolatry which we are fully capable of doing, but for God's restraining grace. Idolatry, in its various forms, brings with it the curse of God. And that is why it should be feared. One of the reason, principal reasons why it should be feared. Over in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verses 16 and 17, we read this. Beware, lest your hearts be deceived, and you turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the ground will not yield its fruit, and you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. That's the language of cursing there that I just read to you in that last verse. Now, of course, we are not ancient Israel. We are not living in that theocracy. We are not out in the wilderness like our uh, spiritual forefathers were. So the specifics of this curse do not apply to us necessarily individually anymore. But the, the idea of curse does. To the person who turns away from God, serves other gods, and worships them, and does so ongoingly without repentance, the curse of God, the eternal curse of God, is upon him or her. And that passage and, and numerous others that we could uh, cite makes that point uh, painfully obvious. Idolatry brings curse, uh, a curse upon the idolater. Perhaps you're thinking to yourself, what does this command have to do with me? I would never commit idolatry. I love Christ. I'm one of his children. And yes, perhaps your love for Christ and you being his child, that is true. 
But again, remember what I said a few moments ago. To to whom is this letter penned? It's being penned to the church. It's being penned to the people of God. The covenant, the visible church, the covenant people of God are receiving this language from the Holy Spirit through the Apostle Paul. He calls them saints, brethren, those who uh, those who are sanctified uh, elsewhere in the letter. And so, this does apply to me and to you. This is a real danger for all of us, even as Christians. How is it possible for a Christian to commit adultery? Uh, excuse me, not adultery, idolatry. Adultery is a form of idolatry. How is it possible for us to do this? We do not have to bow down to crossbones Jones or a piece of wood or a piece of stone uh, to be a, an idolater. That is not necessary. There are much more subtle ways to commit idolatry. For example, worship. The way we worship God can be idolatrous. To worship God in ways other than he prescribes in his word is tantamount to idolatry. It's one of the reasons we are quite careful, we are very careful in this church about the way we go about worshiping God and what we do allow in our worship and do do in our worship and what we don't. We are careful about that for this very reason. Um, And uh, idolatrous worship was exactly what Israel was rendering to God when they attempted to worship the Lord through the golden calf. If you go back to that text in Exodus 32, uh, they said, uh, Aaron said, uh, today we have a feast to the Lord. And then that was through the uh, golden calf that that worship was going to take place. It was a, uh, it was going to be apparently a channel, conduit to, to God, as, or so, so the foolish Israelites thought. And uh, it wasn't that they were out and out abandoning the worship of the Lord. They just were getting creative in the way they worshipped him. They used an image. Yes, crazy, I know. And yet we're all prone to it. Um, and so that was, that was perverse worship. That was evil worship because they decided how they would worship God rather than letting God tell them how to worship him. And that is idolatry as we know from that text, uh, which most all of us are familiar with. Also, another way we can commit idolatry is by putting um, is by seeking to um, put our own desires above obedience to God in any in any area that you might think of. Uh, they can be you can come up with a multiply examples of where where we can do this. But where we where God wants us to do some one thing, and we say in our hearts either actually or by our actions, no, I want to do something else. I like this rather than what you have for me, God. So, for example, if we were to put sleep or exercise or entertainments, think television, or our jobs above spending time with God when we know we really need to spend time with God in worship or in prayer, that is idolatry of self. That is saying, I am God, you are not right now. And you've heard me repeat this uh, many a time, but it is true. Whenever we make that choice, that sin choice, we have said, God, you are not in charge right now, I am. 
uh, and we become idolatrous Christians at that point in time. That sounds oxymoronic, but it's true. Now, somebody who's truly a Christian will repent of that idolatry. But let's call it what it is, and not mince words. It is, indeed, idolatry. To put relationships, perhaps good relationships, spousal relationships, or relationships with our parents or our children, uh, above God, is to idolize man, to idolize our spouse, or our children, or our parents, uh, and put them first before God. It is sin, it is the sin of idolatry. And this is a very, very grave sin. Paul just got through, earlier in this chapter, in chapter 10 of 1 Corinthians, he just got through uh, warning his readers not to follow in the steps of the idolatrous of their idolatrous forefathers whom God had judged. Um, and after explaining that idolatrous behavior on the part of on the part of the Israelites of old, he says, in God's judgment of that behavior, he then says in verse 14, therefore. Notice the connection. Your spiritual forefathers in the visible church of old sinned in this way, and God judged them. He brought his curse down upon them. The vast majority of them, therefore, don't you do this. Therefore, flee from idolatry. Given the fact that God punished those who also said they served him and loved him back in the day, uh, but who didn't, uh, as evidenced by their ongoing behavior, the vast majority of them as evidenced by their behavior, and God brought his curse down upon them. Don't you be the same, Paul is saying, and the Holy Spirit to us as well, through Paul, don't you be the same. Don't make the same mistake. Learn from the example of your spiritual forefathers and flee from such practices as they engaged in. And the gravity of this command to flee from, uh, is evident also from the fact that the Lord, the Lord's character is a, as a, as a jealous God. God is a jealous God who insists upon undivided loyalty and love from us, his people. Uh, over in Exodus chapter, uh, 34 verses 12 and following, we read this, uh, uh, reminder of the God who is our God and how he is like. We read there, starting in verse 12 of chapter 34, Be sure to observe what I am commanding you this day. Behold, I am going to drive out the Amorite before you, and the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Watch watch yourselves that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, lest it become a snare in your midst. But rather, you are to tear down their altars and smash their sacred pillars and cut down their asherim. For you shall not worship any other god, for the Lord, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous god. Lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they play the harlot with their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and someone invite you to eat, notice, to eat of his sacrifice. And you take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters play the harlot 
with their gods and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. You shall make for yourself no molten gods. Because why? God is jealous of your love and your loyalty and your affection is the point. How are you and I to flee from the idolatrous inclination that still lurks within us, uh, albeit uh, not in the same way as when we were unconverted? How are we to flee? By guarding our hearts is the simple answer. By guarding our hearts. You know the verse uh, from uh, Proverbs. um, uh, Watch over your heart with all diligence. With all diligence. For from it flow the springs of life. Our our hearts are prone uh, still, uh, are able to be idolatrous. Prone is probably too strong a word, but we certainly have the capacity for idolatry still, even though we have a new heart. And so we need to guard our hearts. We need to be careful about the thoughts that we allow to cross our mind, or stay in our mind, I should say. Um, We need to be careful about the attitudes that we have, the, the things that we do and we don't do. We need to be diligent, not casual about this enterprise. And we need to do this by, uh, quite obviously, spending consistent time with, uh, in God's Word and, and praying for an undivided heart. Pray, Lord, take away the, that which remains in me of the idolater. Please get rid of it, Lord. Kill it. And of course, we need to, another way we need to flee is by literally fleeing, by steering clear of all situations uh, that we can anticipate, at least, that may tempt us. Um, figure out uh, what forms of idolatry we are most prone to and what situations tend to encourage or foster that idolatrous inclination and stay away. This is, a, this is where those of you, uh, those of us who, and all of us do to some degree or another, um, use modern media, um, tablets and iPhones and televisions and the like, be careful. I'm not going to say anything about, you know, make some sort of a blanket statement like it's a sin to watch television or watch a movie. But be careful. Because what you, what you allow your head to take in, especially when you're in a relaxed state of mind, it gets in there. It affects you. It's, there's just no way it can't have some effect on you. And the more you get used to the world's mindset, the world's behavior and thoughts and attitudes through media, uh, and that includes, and I'm, I, this is something my family knows I struggle with, watching news, staying up on the news too much. That can be, that can be idolatrous, and it, it is for me at times. And it's, but I, we need to be careful, you see, about what we expose ourselves to and how, how often. Guard ourselves. And the specific point uh, that uh, Paul, uh, of Paul's command to the Corinthians, to his readers to whom he was writing um, uh, initially when he wrote, is uh, this practice uh, among some of the Corinthians there at Corinth. You see, some of the believers, professing believers, and probably actual believers, uh, many of them, were attending 
sacrificial feasts that were held at um, the various pagan temples in town. And they were apparently defending their participation in those religious festivals on the following grounds. They said, look, the idols that the pagans are worshipping are not actual gods. They're not. Verse 19, Paul uh, echoes their, their argument. What do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? And of course... A piece of stone is just that. It's a piece of stone. And that's what they probably were. Metal, you know, might have been made out of gold or silver or something like that. But they were just things in one sense. They weren't gods, really. And apparently that was the argument that was being made by those who felt free to, to go to, uh, you know, and dine with their pagan friends, perhaps, and, uh, and even perhaps go to the temple of their pagan god to do it. And they said, you know, you can't fellowship with a non-existent reality that's not an actual God there. So what's the big deal? That was one argument they offered, apparently. And another argument was that the sacrificed meat that was served at those idol celebrations or, or worship services, it too was nothing. There was nothing evil about that piece of meat. And that point, Paul echoes there uh, again in verse, uh, in verse 19. Uh, makes the, alludes to that point. And they, that was apparently their argument as well. Look, that meat has no power in it, it uh, in, its, in and of itself to contaminate me, was their argument. And the truth is that there was legitimacy to that argument. But they went on and said, well, therefore, there's no problem at all for me to attend uh, a pagan celebration and enjoy the good food that they're going to be serving there along with a friend or two of mine, or whatever. Well, in the remainder of this passage, after verse 19, Paul exposes the fatal flaw in the reasoning of those folks who were going to those pagan celebrations and saying, hey, there's nothing wrong here. He says, yes, there is. And that's... Um, leads, uh, and so, and what Paul is saying, and what he does say in the remainder of this section, I'm paraphrasing, of course, but he says essentially, although it is true, those of you who have been going to pagan celebrations or eating pagan meat knowingly in, uh, in situations that are, uh, where, where, uh, you know, where there's an obvious connection to the idolatry involved, although it is true, Paul essentially saying here that pagan idols are not gods, as the pagans suppose them to be. That is true. And although it is true that the sacrifices that the, uh, the, the sacrifices themselves possess no powers in and of themselves that are attributed to them by, uh, by the, the, the offers of those sacrifices, and it is also true that you have the freedom to eat sacrificed meat under certain circumstances. Paul makes that point elsewhere. Right, Romans, for example, and although it is uh, nonetheless, though although all those things are true, Paul is saying nonetheless, pagan worship is real idolatry. Even though their gods aren't real, what they are doing is truly idolatrous. And Christians who join the heathens in eating sacrificed meat at their religious festivals specifically devoted to the worship of their false god, 
Christians who join with them are committing idolatry also. You are committing idolatry, Paul is saying, to those of you who are doing this. Therefore, flee from it. That's why he gives the command. But how is it possible when the idols of the pagans are not gods and Christians who attend such feasts have no intention of worshiping them as gods, how is it possible that it can be idolatry? Well, that leads to the next major point that Paul uh, brings forth in this section, and that is the, the basis for the Lord's command that you are uh, to flee idolatry, that his readers and that we, by implication, are to flee idolatry. And that's given in verse 20, and that is because any participation in idolatrous activities of others amounts to communion with demons. Verse 20. No, but I, so again, I'll start in verse 20. What, what, what do I mean then? That a thing sacrificed to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No, that's not what I'm saying. But I say that the things which the Gentiles, meaning the pagans, sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to become sharers in demons, which you will do if you participate with them in their activities and think you're somehow immune to spiritual harm. That's what Paul is saying in the Holy Spirit through him. You are, in effect, befriending, allying yourself, and worshiping the evil spirits. Uh, evil spirits when you do that. And Paul offers two analogies to prove his assertion that, that you're essentially communing with uh, the demonic host when, you in, uh, uh, when his readers engage in that uh, kind of activity. He says first, his first analogy that he offers, he points out that the one who partakes of the Lord's Supper actually shares in some mystical way in the body and blood of Christ himself. The body and blood of Christ. We share in that in a spiritual way that is mysterious. But he makes that point in verse 16. Is not the cup of blessing which we bless a sharing in the blood of Christ? And is not the bread which we break a sharing in the body of Christ? And the answer is, yes it is. Because it's worship. It's an act of worship. And when you do that, you actually participate in Jesus, if you will, if I can put it that way. You are communing in a special way with Christ in the Lord's Supper, which we're going to be celebrating here in in a few minutes. And it's, it's a mysterious, and it's a spiritual, and it's a contagious, is that the word I want? Thing. And that communion with the one that you are worshiping has a dramatic and profound effect on your soul. That's Paul's point. Whether it be Christ or whether it be some false god who the demons are inspiring or who's, who have created the, you know, the desire for and uh, promoted those, demon, uh, those uh, false gods. So that's the first analogy he gives to make his point. And, the, and then secondly, what he does to prove his assertion that participating in idolatrous activity amounts to communion with demons uh, for the Christian, um, 
professing Christian, is he reminds them that the Old Testament Jews, this is in verse 18, became sharers in the altar of Yahweh by their participation in the ritual sacrifices that they undertook. Verse 18, look at the nation of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices sharers in the altar? And the answer is yes, they are. And by implication, the God who is being worshipped by what's going on on that altar. When they offered uh, certain uh, types of offerings, a portion was burned on the altar, just like with the pagans. The rest was eaten uh, by uh, the offerer himself, the worshiper, or given to the priest. And according to Deuteronomy 12, verse 18, the offerer had to eat his portion um, of the sacrifice before the Lord in the temple precinct. He had to do it. He had to eat it in the temple precinct before the Lord. In other words, with the Lord watching him, as it were, from the, from the, um, the Holy of Holies and the, and the uh, ark, the mercy seat. And, and it was an act of worship that brought that worshiper into communion with the altar and with the one who that altar was dedicated to, Yahweh, in a, in a special way. As it does, as this does today, by the way, when we partake of the Lord's Supper. And in the same way, Paul is making the argument he's making to these readers is in the same way participation in pagan religious festivals brings, uh, brings you into communion with those who are the sponsors of that idolatry, and that is the demons themselves and the evil one. And it too, that communion, that contamination, there's where the word is appropriate, leaves its mark upon your soul. It's toxic. And it poisons you spiritually. And what it brings about this demonic communion is not some sort of contamination inherent in the meat itself. Again, the meat itself is not is not a spiritual thing. It's a physical thing. But rather, it is the religious nature of the event uh, or of the place in which that meat is offered that brings the contamination when it is offered. makes no difference whether you intend such communion or not. You are communing. So, for, um, so for example, uh, participation in... Um, Religious rites uh, say something that uh, resembles communion in the Mormon church. You go and take communion in a Mormon church and go, I'm not a Mormon, but I'm, I'm, I like grape juice, you know. Or I like whatever, whatever they're serving. Um, you are contaminated by that experience. You are damaged by that experience. And much more importantly, God is grieved by that. So any of those religious communions that have a false gospel and you partake and participate in those religious elements of that worship in those false communions that may pretend to be Christian, I would argue, and I think legitimately from this text, uh, that you are, that that is a sin, a very grave sin, to participate in some place that calls itself Christian but is fundamentally not. By the, by the message that they preach or proclaim. We cannot fellowship with both demons and Christ at the same time, Paul says in verse 21. I'm not going to bother to 
Well, yeah, I will read it. Uh, you cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. And by implication, fellowship with the Lord and fellowship with demons. It's impossible to be a friend and a guest of Christ and at the same time of a demon. They are mutually exclusive arrangements, shall we say. If you're here today and you haven't given your life to Christ, you haven't trusted him as your Savior to save you from hell and to be the Lord or King of your life, that means you're not a Christian. Um, The issue here for you is not whether you are worshiping something, but it's who you're worshiping. You may sit there, you could be a non-Christian and go, I'm an agnostic, I'm not even sure there's anything else out there. Maybe, maybe not. But I don't have any particular thing that I worship, a deity that I worship. Not true. You do. Everybody worships. Everybody out there worships. It's, it's built into your humanity that you are a worshiping creature. You worship if you're a non-Christian. You're worshiping. You're, um, you aren't communing with or serving. If you're not communing with or serving Christ, you are serving. Whether you realize it or not, you are serving, serving the devil and his unholy angels. And you need Christ, or you will go to hell for eternity. You need to flee to Jesus, to flee from your dependence upon everything else that you hold dear and are trusting in to, to make your world good and make eternity good for you, uh, like your good works, for example, or, or your church membership. And you need to flee from those things as things in which you put your trust. And you need to put your trust in the person and work of Jesus Christ in him alone. He will is the only one who will save you from God's violent justice, which is in hell. Finally and briefly, implications, and I'll just make this very brief, because this is actually this is actually what I normally say here. So you're going to hear it in the point in the sermon. But the implication of this is that you and I must not use our Christian liberty, which is what the folks who were eating uh, that meat sacrificed to idols in those religious pagan festivals apparently were doing, to use your Christian liberty as a license to sin. Yes, they had the license, they, they had the liberty in certain circumstances to buy and eat meat that was offered to, that, that they, that might have been, might have been offered to a pagan deity. Um, but uh, under the circumstances that Paul sets forth here, they were not free to do that. They were abusing their liberty and making it a license to sin against God. And we liberty is no longer liberty when we are unable to do it in faith with a clear conscience. It is no longer liberty when we, uh, when we exercise it in a way that causes another Christian to sin in that area, that we're exercising some liberty. And it's also no longer liberty to you or me when we use it as an excuse for sin as some Corinthians were in fact doing, to whom Paul was writing. The, Christian, the Corinthians who were doing this, they were, again, attending those, apparently attending those pagan festivals and thought, this, this has no effect on me. And secondly, another implication of this command not to flee, or to, to flee, rather, from idolatry, is we must, we must commune with Christ and him alone as our the one whom we worship, and through him with the Father and the Spirit. We need to do that generally uh, throughout the course of every day. You and I need to commune with him 
Um, we are told in uh, Psalm 105, verse 4, Seek the Lord and His strength. Seek His face continually. That is to be a daily, ongoing process of, as we go about our tasks, seeking the face of God, being mindful of His presence, um, practicing His presence, uh, um, is one way of putting that. Uh, point is, we are to have, be mindful of the Lord throughout our day. We are to practice His presence through prayer, meditation, active reliance upon Him as we go about doing what He's called us to do. And specifically, we are to commune with Christ, not just generally each day, we are to do that, but specifically through this meal right here, the Lord's Supper. That is one of the implications of this um, of this passage that we have before us. This sacrament, this holy ordinance, was instituted by Christ himself over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the next chapter, verse 23. Jesus himself, or, uh, Paul says of uh, an encounter that he had with Jesus, For I received from the Lord, that is Christ himself, that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night in which he was betrayed took bread. Uh, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and then he goes on. Uh, Jesus himself instituted this sacrament. It, the sacrament and our participation in it is to be a reminder of the great truths connected with the death of Christ as a sacrifice for sin. We are to be reminded as we partake. You know, in verse 26, it says, For as often as you eat this bread, this is chapter 11 now, and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We are to be thinking on the implications of what Jesus did for us, in particular on the cross, but indeed throughout all aspects of his atoning work, uh, but particularly uh, his dying as a sacrifice for our sins. And so the sacrament is designed by the Lord himself to teach us and to represent the gospel to us in visible form. It's not merely a sign, in other words. It's much more than just a sign of our belief in Jesus. It is also a seal, we believe, of the covenant of grace between us and Christ himself. Over in Luke, in his gospel, chapter 22, verse 20, he says, um, in his institution of the Lord's Supper, Luke's recording of it, um, this cup, uh, which is poured out for many, is the new covenant in my blood. That's that's sacramental language, it's called. The cup, obviously, isn't the covenant itself. But it's spoken of as if it's the covenant, because it uh, signifies and seals the benefits of the covenant to us who partake of it. It's like a voucher attesting to to us, uh, attesting to and confirming the validity of and the power of the covenant that Christ himself initiated, that God initiated with us through Christ, uh, and that he brings about uh, all of its benefits to us. He has not only given uh, you his word that he will keep his covenant, he's given us that word here, but he has also given you this sacrament, Jesus himself has, as a further guarantee of his promise that he will faithfully fulfill it in your life as you partake uh, and as you walk with him. And he thereby condescends to our weakness uh, that we often display of faith toward him. And it is finally a means of grace to you 
when you and I, when we rightly partake of this sacrament. We are, as Paul says in verse 16, sharing in the body and the blood of Christ. That is more than merely symbolic language. There is some sense in which we share. This is not Romanism that you're hearing right now. This is not transubstantiation. But there is a sense in which we share in the body and blood of Christ. We, we, we commune with his, the fullness of Christ, including his physical body and blood. And we experience afresh the benefits of that broken body and broken blood, uh, that shed blood uh, afresh for our souls as we partake in faith. And thereby we are brought into a real and fuller communion with our Savior and our King. I would commend to you larger catechism, question 168. I was going to read it to you, but I don't, we don't have the time. But I would commend that to you for your study this, this day, actually. You can find it in the back of your hymnal. Uh, perhaps you can find it online. But larger catechism 168. Uh, take some time to study that. And the participants in this sacrament that Paul speaks of, he assumes, of course, uh, the presence of genuine faith in the receiver of uh, those who uh, those who actually believe in Christ receive the benefit that is vouchsafed uh, in the uh, sacrament. And notice this as a one final thought: when we partake of the sacrament, the language Paul used there points to the fact that we are united to one another in a joint participation in the Lord's Supper. Uh, Since there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For For we all partake of that one bread. There is a union. This is a symbol of our of our collective um, spiritual unity that should express itself in our doctrine and in the way we act towards one another, that we actually should treat each other like family members. And one of the exhortations that uh, you can probably derive from this passage is, is there anybody I need to treat a little bit more like a, a family member? That means a good family, you know, in a good way, not... Some family relations are not always good. But uh, assuming a good relationship, um, the exhortation would be here to do that. So, flee immorality. As, flee idolatry. Flee immorality, too. But flee idolatry. Um, because and, and flee to Christ afresh. Let's do that now as we pray and as we partake of the Lord's Supper. Join with me. Lord, we thank you for this passage that uh, teaches us so much, some of which we were not able to fully delve into, but we thank you, Lord, that uh, we are in communion with you because of what you accomplished, Lord Jesus, for us in your voluntary condescension and your voluntary offering up of yourself, a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice and to reconcile us to God and in your continual making continual intercession for us now we commune with you and we thank you that we do so in a very tangible and a unique way when we partake of this meal of which we are about to partake we thank you for uh, giving it to us we thank you for the reminder of uh, how we um, share in your body and your blood when we partake 
and of all the benefits that flow to us from uh, what your sacrifice brought about in our lives. Thank you so much for the love that you have for us, Jesus. And thank you, Father, for sending him. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for applying his redemption to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our hymn uh, indicated, um, actually I didn't indicate it in the sermon, but this is one of two holy ordinances that uh, our Savior himself instituted before he ascended into heaven, um, the other being uh, baptism. But the uh, record of the institution of the Lord's Supper is found in a number of places in the New Testament, one of which is in 1 Corinthians, from which I'm about to read here, uh, starting again in verse 23. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, Paul speaking, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And then he says this, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. So there we have the words of institution. Um, This meal is uh, to be observed, as we've already read, in remembrance of Christ and of his sacrifice uh, of himself. Uh, As we, uh, uh, we are to observe this meal frequently, we are told in Scripture, uh, until the Lord returns again in glory. And this meal is of great value to those who partake in of it rightly. That is to say, you're in Christ, uh, and you're uh, actively trusting in the Lord Jesus for the blessings of the covenant as you partake. That is what it means to rightly uh, partake. And, by the way, and also not to cherish some sin in your heart. Uh, if you are uh, hanging on to some sin, you've not re- repented of it, uh, uh, you have no right and it would be very unwise for you to partake right now uh, because uh, you are mocking God. You're saying you're a Christian and one of his children, and you're playing games with him. You're clinging to some idol in your life. Um, and it is in that. It's, it's an idol if it's a sin that you will not repent of. And you need to use this time to think on the, uh, 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 the terrible thing that you are doing, the way you are angering God, uh, and uh, the danger that your soul is in, because you may well not be a Christian at all if you're, if you're refusing to give up some sin. Christians repent of sin. Non-Christians don't. And so you need to think on that if that's you. Um, and you're, but if you're struggling with sin, you are welcome and indeed urged by Christ himself to come, to partake of the benefit that comes from, in a mysterious way, through the Holy Spirit's work, not through the elements themselves, but the Holy Spirit working in our participation. He blesses us. It's a cup of blessing that brings blessing, in other words. When, and that only comes from God, not from the cup, but from God the Holy Spirit, blessing you. And presumably, by implication, we can, we can uh, uh, 
presume that that is blessing us with, with a greater strength to live the Christian life as, in a way that honors God, to, to put off sin more and more and to put on righteousness more and more. Um, and that's implied by the idea of blessing, which is said to come, that was in our text that we read from uh, this morning. We also uh, want you to know, not, not only do you need to be a Christian, but you also need to be a baptized member in good standing of this or some other church as evidence that you are a Christian, that some church, legitimate church, has put the sign of church membership upon you, which is uh, baptism. You don't have to be a member of this church, but uh, you do need to be a baptized member of an evangelical church. Let's pray and ask the Lord's blessing upon our participation. Oh Lord, we do earnestly desire your blessing upon us, but more than that, we desire your honor. We want you to be glorified by the way we partake and worship you and commune with you. This is your table. You are the host. Um, Would you please honor yourself in our midst by uh, causing us to uh, meditate upon Christ, upon you and what you did for us in a way that uh, brings uh, honor to you and brings change to us. We uh, thank you for your beautiful condescension that is evident in this meal that you have given us to draw us closer to you. Please Please be in it now. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Lord Jesus, on the same night in which was, he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, as I am ministering in his name, give this bread to you. And he said, take, eat, this is my body, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. Please wait until everyone's served with the bread, and likewise with the cup, and then we'll partake together of each. The body of Christ was broken for you. Take and eat. In the same manner, he took the cup, and having given thanks, as we've already done in his name, he gave it to his disciples, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for many for the forgiveness of sins. Drink from it. All of you. The blood of Christ was shed for you. Drink from it, all of you. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you again for this means of grace. Um, We thank you that uh, the promises that attend uh, to our right use of this means, and we do pray that you would indeed uh, bless us in our, that we might be better at honoring and serving and loving and trusting and obeying you. Uh, You are most worthy. And uh, that is what is most important about our being blessed, is you being receiving what you deserve from us. Would you please use this meal toward that end? Would you please grow us in our likeness of you, morally speaking? 
And would you please make us more useful to you? Would you grant us opportunities to to talk about you with uh, those that we encounter in this coming week? Would you please give us the courage and the desire to speak, even when it seems like it might be a little awkward to do so or uncomfortable? Please help us to get over ourselves, Lord, and to be willing to uh, uh, bring up, uh, bring you up in conversations with folks. And would you please give us the privilege, each of us, the privilege of leading lost souls to, to you. Um, and Lord, we thank you again for this time, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive now God's blessing. Now may the God of peace, who brought it from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen.